Listener Production. This is part two of Jailhouse Lawyer. In part one, David McCulloch was back in jail for 13 years on drug trafficking charges. He had evidence that he'd been framed by police, but it fell on deaf ears. He was perhaps a victim of his own choices nonetheless. He was now one of the best-connected crooks in Melbourne, but the future was bleak. He was 55, a grandfather, and a sentence like this often crushes the hopes of older crooks. But something changed in his heart this time. He decided that if he was to get through this stretch, he would have to put himself out for others. And that decision would have far-reaching effects for the jail and David McCulloch personally. Welcome to Adam Shand at Large. I guess I'm trying to oversimplify it possibly, that you go into jail as a bad guy, but in jail you actually, paradoxically, start to fall back on the things that make you the best, David McCulloch. This is so pop psychology and self-help, it's almost making me sick. But did you find yourself in there? Did you actually find the best version of yourself in this terrible, claustrophobic, hostile jungle called Barwon Jail? I think I found the best person I could be, which is what I was pre-36 years of age. All I wanted to do was just do what I could do within the system, which helped me too, of course, absolutely. Helped me, I think, keep more sane because I think there's a, a period in time when you become institutionalised to the point of perhaps being unwell, having seen it with so many people. One day they're fine, they've done seven, eight, nine, ten years, and the next minute they're sitting in the middle of the common room, taking off their T-shirt, throwing it away, not conversing in a coherent manner. So I've seen enough of that, and uh, I was glad that I did keep myself busy. I really believe it's despair sets in. That's what I believe, and something snaps. David McCulloch had two things going for him when he went into Barwon Prison in 2005. The first was Kelvin Muir, his faithful associate. Years before, McCulloch had put a roof over Kelvin's head when he and his family faced being homeless. Now, Kelvin was repaying the loyalty. I never forgot what he did for us. Mm. No. So, he had a family that needed help. We were a family once that needed help and, uh, yeah. And it's come at some cost to yourself. I mean, I, I couldn't believe how busy you were. Sometimes you'd turn up at my office with a big pile of documents you're taking off to the High Court or you're off to see someone's family taking some message or something or other. It was pretty constant. Yeah, look, financially and uh, not so much emotionally, but, um, yeah, Publicly took a bit of a kicking at times about it, but uh, that goes with the territory. Price of loyalty for you? He's always been strong-willed, determined, and he worked diligently to make sure that where he was living was a clean, safe place. And by doing that, I suppose I was a pretty important part of that because I could get things done on the outside here for the people on the inside. Because what happens with a lot of them when they get incarcerated, their families dump them. They don't want anything to do with them. So they become an embarrassment or they just don't have the skill set to deal with it or, you know, socially they're just not 
not up to it, you know. The other plus for McCulloch was that he'd known the general manager of Barwon, David Prideau, in another life, junior football in Sunbury. My favourite saying in there was, time's the greatest leveller. I mean, it was a standing joke. Sometimes the general manager would walk down and the general manager in those days was a person who I knew outside of the system who was the football coach for one of my grandchildren. He was a wonderful human being. David Prideau? David Prideau, yes. Absolutely wonderful human being. And he was a chap responsible for, I understand, promoting a holistic caring of all inmates. Not a weak man, a tough man, but a genuine heart. When he would walk down the walkway and there'd be about 150 prisoners out there and I'd be walking with a couple of my friends up the track and David would come down and my friends would suddenly veer off and say, I'm off, Dave, see you later. Because they knew that David Prido, this is, the, this is testament to the type of man he was, would come in, walk down and he'd shake my hand and I would shake his hand in front of everybody. They all knew I knew him from before. And they all knew that whenever I went to bat for them, I had to go to David Prido. But what they didn't want was if he was shaking old Dave's hand, they might want to shake my hand. So we're effing off. And that was always a standing joke there. It was because of the bond of trust between McCulloch and the boss that he was allowed to set up a desk where he could help prisoners in the eight hours he was out of his cell. There's a bit of Shawshank Redemption in your story. Have you seen the film? I did. Guy goes into jail for a crime he didn't commit. <coughs> He's got a long stretch, gets himself an office, ringing bells. <laughs> How did you go into Barwon Jail? Regarded as one of the most serious crooks in Melbourne. And you'd end up with an office. Tell, tell me how that happened. So it was something that was always lacking in the system and obviously was because I was then getting letters from all the jails in the state through word of mouth. Oh, there's an old guy in Barwon, write to him and he'll see if he can help you with that and this and the next thing. And so it was the goodwill of, of uh, management. It was the goodwill of unit staff and it was the acknowledgement by those charged with looking after the welfare from medical to psychological to psychiatrical. It wasn't the staff that were there to break you. It was the tradition of prisons. It was the infrastructure. But once in there, if you, if you could separate the staff from the institution and the system, you could work with them. That's a fine line because your peers have to trust you implicitly. They have to. And the only way they can do that is through time. What was the setup that you had? There's a common room. I had a big desk, had a couple of bookcases, and I could put all my other stuff in one of the stores. Up in the morning, 6K run, into the gym, into the shower, at the desk, cup of coffee, and ready by about 10.30, 10 o'clock, 10.30. Then receiving visitors after that, what did that part of the day look like? Like being at the office. Next. Pretty much. And what are the range of things you would have dealt with in one day? Maybe someone had an education project he had to do and a lot of them weren't real good at English and that needed editing. Some would just want help with filling out a form for review and assessment and why, why he would like to move to a lower category of security and we discuss what he's done that would be different as to when he was last assessed. Uh, maybe someone has trouble writing a letter to family, he tell me, how he feels, can you put that into real words? Because I, I can't put it into real words. 
it was then I used to find that some couldn't write and I would then enlist education staff. Things like literacy are key steps on the path to criminality. If you're never taught to read and write, you can't read and write. If you were never taught to drive, you can't drive. How difficult was it for some of these guys to admit these things to you? Did you see the difficulty they had? Don't tell anyone but I can't read and I can't write? Because I'd been there that long and through word of mouth, confidentiality, like I'd be working on something and one of my friends would go up and say, oh, I say, come on, you're my mate, but come on, honour my way of living. This is someone else's. And so that was it. So five days a week? Get real, Adam, will you? Prisons don't shut down, you know. Oh. There's another two days in a week. I wish it was five days a week. It was like that. It's just the way it was. And then I'd do some reading at night in, in my room. And, and to bed, then do it all again. Do it all again, so. An inmate known as the Horse Whisperer approached McCulloch. His elderly parents had been put in a nursing home unbeknownst to him. They were suffering dementia and fading fast. He was in for attempted murder, four years into an 11-year sentence. He'd all but resigned himself to never seeing his parents again. So I started to talk to Dave about that. I saw him do paperwork and we started to discuss it. I said, well, this is my issue. He said, well, we might be able to get you a visit to see your, your parents in your nursing home if you haven't seen them for that number of years. I said, oh, yeah, I'm game. He said, well, I'll help you. And we did the paperwork. The visit was granted. So eventually the day came to, for the visit. I had two guards with me, handcuffs and whatever. So I was sitting there with my parents and I had the two officers sitting across from me and you know, we spent about 40, 50 minutes together. So you got to see your mum and dad, spent that time with them. What did that do for your morale and your, your sense of confidence after that? Well... I've always had a good sense of confidence, but it sort of boosted my overall sort of outlook and sort of gave a little bit more faith back to the system that I was in. But I guess the point is, though, that, yes, you are another number, but for that little moment, you were your parents' son again. That's important. Well, apart from having the handcuffs on, which they never took off, um, I felt free just been away from that uh, the population and the environment that I've been there for four and a half years. So it just, yeah, I nearly felt normal, but not quite. Normal for the inmates of Barwon was having an Anzac Day service, complete with a bugler playing the last post. Some of it's just plain silly, like Anzac Day, for instance. What, what was the request around Anzac Day? I had to get a trumpet. A trumpet into Barwon? Yeah, so I, I had to get a little bit innovative there. I, I went to... Uh, a music story, Burke Street, and told them it needed a trumpet for a while. Told a boy, and they said, if that's legit, yep, maybe you can have it. So so we duly got it in there, and I said to Dave, I said, this bloke won't be able to play it. He hasn't, if he hasn't played it for years, he won't be able to play it. There was a, a former trumpeter in there. Yes, yeah, there was. Yeah. So David was organising an Anzac Day ceremony. So they'd never, ever had one, and I think there was, what, 300-something people turned up for the Anzac Day ceremony, so... And it wasn't live trumpet in the end. No, there wasn't. No, he couldn't do it. He nearly got flogging because he was practising at night in the cell and uh, keeping everybody awake. How bad was he, Dave? Not very good. Not very good. <laughs> Everyone had an urgent case for McCulloch to advise them on. He never held himself out to be a lawyer, just someone who was prepared to read the statute books and look up old cases that might be useful. 
A number of long-term prisoners wanted McCulloch to explore the possibility of seeking leave to appeal against the length of their sentences. Back then, they risked getting an even longer sentence if they annoyed the wrong people. Dave would be straight about their chances. Others had a more realistic shot. What are the cases that stood out for you? Young chap had uh, gone before the, the Supreme Court of Appeal and you go before single judge alone and there was two, three occasions like that through my time there, three occasions, and the single judge had denied the application. But when you go to the Court of Appeal, if the single judge denies you, you can elect to go before the full court. Your chances are slimmer, of course. If a single judge is refused, there's not a great deal of hope. But if we believed there was a strong enough argument, I would suggest that we, we elect to go. And on one occasion, we got we got one guy who'd got the six with a four, was reduced from a five to a three. Another, and I've got letters. This is the joy I get. Letters from their families saying thank you so much. And so... Not always do the single judges get it right. Sometimes it's a collective that's needed and, and these guys got time off. Now, some people would say a year's not a lot of time, but if you go to bed at night and waking up a year later and you've gone to bed at jail and you've woke up a year later, my goodness, it's a long time. And on the outside, Kelvin was getting busier and busier. You know, you get a bit of success once and then you get a bit of success twice and then all of a sudden they line it up. Can you do this for me? Can you help me with that? You know, it, and it wasn't only legal stuff; it was family stuff. You know, so you know they couldn't deal with things because a lot of the blokes, once they go in here, they become very insecure about what's going on outside. You know, so there was times there where um, a pretty well-known fellow had a girlfriend out here, and she had a couple of boys and no food. So they rang me and said, "Look, they got no food in the fridge." So. I'll, Right, I got in touch with her, went down there, picked up the child and we went up to the supermarket, said, right, I might go your hardest. So we went in there and he was. He said, can I get that? Can I get that? I said, yeah, of course you can. We went back with a carload of food for him and, you know, and they were, they were just wrapped. So they, they'd had nobody ever, ever do anything like that for him. So what it did, it, it made life easier for everybody on the inside because we could get things done, so... One of the first matters that Kelvin Muir came to see me about on behalf of David McCulloch related to the Calabrian Mafia. One of McCulloch's colleagues was the alleged Mafia boss, Pasquale Barbaro, who'd been charged with the world's largest ecstasy bust, 15 million pills hidden in tomato tins intercepted at the Melbourne docks. Apparently, his friends in Calabria were very displeased with him and dispatched hitmen from Italy to surveil his house in Griffith, New South Wales, before he was arrested. The snipers kept Barbaro's sprawling Italianate mansion near Griffith under surveillance while waiting for the order to kill the well-known farmer. Jail was a safer place for him, but even there, a plot was uncovered to kill him, so he wanted to make sure his family was safe. Presumably, the publicity would somehow help to dissuade the mafia. I wasn't sure exactly how. It was a remarkable story, because I could hardly believe it myself, but I knew it was true, that his counterparties in, in Calabria, who were apparently part of the whole deal, were very unhappy with what had happened, the, the drugs had disappeared, and they'd sent hitmen down to Australia. <laughs> they were trying to work out where the drugs had gone. That was the first of it, that, and that came in the Australian, and people thought, really? Hitmen coming to Australia, and it really was 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 an amazing story. I think that the reason that people were happy for you to report on those stories was because of your level of integrity. 
and it wasn't, these stories weren't sensationalised. To have a balanced article come out is all one ever wants. It's all one's families when you're incarcerated ever wants. Just say it as it is. Don't sensationalise it and try and cause problems for people. Then there was the case of Jason Roberts, who was serving 35 years for murder over the slaying of two police officers, Rodney Miller and Gary Silk, in 1998. Roberts was 17 and had been going out with the daughter of a man named Bendali Debs. Outwardly, Debs looked like a suburban dad when he was in fact a cruel, vicious psycho. The pair were doing armed robberies together, hitting fast food shops, restaurants and small businesses in Melbourne's southeast from March to July 1998. Silk and Miller had pulled over a suspect vehicle and were fired upon. Moments later, Silk lay dead with his firearm still holstered. Miller had staggered 170 metres away from the crime scene. Officers who came after the shooting found Miller close to death and barely able to speak, but said he described the gunman's car as a dark-coloured Hyundai, coupe or hatchback. The car was later found to be owned by Debs's daughter. Most crucially for Roberts, police said Miller told them there had been two attackers. The dying declaration was simple and unassailable in fact, or so it seemed, until McCulloch began to work with Jason Roberts. Roberts confided in McCulloch that he actually was never on the scene. At the time of the killing, he was totally under the spell of Debs and promised not to reveal the truth of the crime. In the process, Roberts had effectively thrown his life away. Very horrendous episode in life. But as it looks likely to be the case, he goes before the court again, having new evidence being brought forward. Uh, He had good counsel but he was very wary and uh, would run some aspects of what it entailed to me and I would give him what my opinion was. Again, it was very difficult because it involved a petition for mercy. It involved the fact that if he was going down that track, he, he would possibly be moved to a management unit because of the perception of what it involved in relation to his co-accused This was because other inmates would see him as an informer, simply for going back on the deal with his co-accused and telling authorities that Debs had acted alone. McCulloch thought it was worth the risk. If there was one person I was convinced in all the time I was there that was innocent of the crime, it was Jason Roberts. And What made you so convinced? I guess the very fact that when he was arrested... With Bindali Debs, he was released on bail for several weeks. And as I understand it, and as is now seemingly to bear out as being truthful, was told, we know you weren't there, but we know you know how it went down because you would have been told how it went down. You've got three weeks to consider it, otherwise we're coming back to get you. Never would that happen where innocent policemen have been executed. At the time of his trial, Roberts offered no alibi. Instead, he remained silent. Now, years later, he was telling McCulloch he wasn't there. A former homicide detective, Ron Idles, reviewed the case and found there were no witnesses who saw two offenders and no evidence to support the prosecution's theory that Roberts had fired the first shot while hidden inside the car. 
The petition for mercy before the Attorney-General rests on alibi evidence from Roberts and Bendali Deb's daughter Nicole Debs's evidence that Roberts was not at the scene of the murder and therefore could not be the second gunman. Jason Roberts' case is now headed for the Court of Appeal because of what David McCulloch began. Okay, we are rolling again, David. Welcome back. So listen, um, you got a call this morning from Barwon Jail at 8 o'clock. Who was it? I did. It was a, a gentleman by the name of David Whiteleg, a former major in the Australian Armed Forces and suffers greatly psychologically, psychiatrically. Why is he in Barwon? He's in Barwon for the offence of killing his wife, a heinous crime, of course. McCulloch would help almost anyone who asked him. David Whiteleg had been a major in the British and Australian armies and served in combat zones. He was in Kosovo and Iraq with the United Nations, mainly in logistical roles. He was a major in logistics, but was in one of the helicopters that was monitoring the destruction of the Basra Road. In Iraq. Where opposition armed forces, all probably decent human beings as well, were clambering out of tanks and armoured vehicles on fire. So he definitely served in war zones. When he returned to Australia, Whiteleg suffered depression and anxiety. He imagined the army and his wife Anne were conspiring against him to ruin his career. This took a toll on his marriage, and in 2014, after becoming increasingly paranoid and delusional, he strangled his wife during an argument. Once he'd killed Anne, Whiteleg began soberly organising his affairs. He gave away his cat and wrote to his mother in England, admitting to his wife's death and to apologise for having stained the family name. After several days, Whiteleg phoned a funeral parlour to organise a funeral, saying his wife had died unexpectedly. He was sentenced to at least 14 years behind bars. He pleaded guilty because he was such a lonely man. He didn't endear himself to the inmate community at bar when you have a key where you can lock your cell door wherever you go. 99.999% of people don't because what you're saying is, I don't trust my neighbour. But David would lock his... Talking with him, the sadness and remorse constantly. The degree of remorse is evidenced by the very fact that on significant occasions through the number of years he has spent thus far at Barwon, he has attempted suicide on 12 occasions, 12 documented occasions within Corrections Victoria's system. He is so remorseful that his life is lived in a cloud. I was probably his only friend so yes, and he would come up and say, say Look, can I ask you a question? i say, of course you can. First question was, can you help me make an application for a computer? Because you had to have a good reason to be able to get a computer in Bowen. Really good reason. It had to be not just education. It had to be you were doing some of your legal work on your own. I encouraged them to speak to, to staff more, explaining that they're not your enemy. They're not the opposing armed forces from outside, I used to use that analogy with them. I said, they will help. The clinicians will help. And you'd gone further than the computer. You started to look at his case overall. 
he started asking questions about his case and can you look at this for me and can you tell me what you think has to be done if I want to take this further, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, yes. What was the fundamental issue that you identified? This guy was not fit under the Act. I think it's the unfitness to plead or be tried. It's an Act similar to that name. It would seem that this had been missed in his particular case due to his particular circumstances, due to the fact that there was not one other inmate in the whole of Victoria, at least, if not the whole of Australia, who had served the Commonwealth in war zones to the degree he did and was unwell and it wasn't picked up in time. I don't think I'm different. I think being in that environment for so many years, I don't care how clever one think one is in terms of being able to cope. We all have our sad moments when that door is closed and contemplation time is 16 hours out of 24. So I can perhaps look at it through a different set of eyes than those that haven't experienced it and knowing full well that this was a man that's different to the majority of them in there. This is a man that's been selfless, who loved his wife, who is seriously in distress and despair when a marriage anniversary or the anniversary of her death or her birthday appears, he would just come in, into my room and ask if he could just sit for a little while. So, Since McCulloch's release in November 2017, he's kept touch with Whiteleg. I said to David, at my age, I've got to start again. I've got to go back to work and I'm going to be helping you and one or two others to meet the obligations that I, I took upon myself. But I'm not going to be doing it if I'm hearing that you don't give a damn and make any attempts to harm yourself again. I said, so do we have an agreement or don't we have an agreement? And every telephone call, I reiterate it and I reiterate it because he is a man of his word. And I think his training made him that and the rank he achieved. And in his own personal life, I believe he was a man of his word. So I believe he was a good friend in his own life with those around him. The phone call that morning was significant. Whiteleg is being sued by his late wife's family. He fears he'll have nowhere to live once he's released. He was rather emotional too. I just said to him, I said, we talked last week about the fact that you were concerned about being destitute and having nowhere to live. Well, that's not the case. I said, I'm employed full time. I'm going to have my own place, no doubt by the time you're home, and there'll be a room there for you and you'll have the run of the house that I am in. So there's no discussion about being destitute, I would imagine. Kelvin's place could be getting pretty full. So you'll have another one in here? <laughs> Possibly so. <laughs> Possibly so, yeah, the halfway house. You're a victim of your own success, Kel. Mm, yeah. So no regrets of the whole thing? Oh, there's some things you do differently. You know, as I've always said today, there's no point looking in a rear-vision mirror. You're only going to run into something in front of you, so... You've got to move ahead with it, so... By 2009, McCulloch had turned the hostile environment into something more positive. It was still jail, of course, but each day he woke up with a purpose. With the help of the general manager, David Prideau, McCulloch began working with prisoners inside management units, some of the most intractable offenders in the jail. He began to think of the future, only to be dragged back into his past 
Carl Williams decided to turn dog and give information about former friends, including David McCulloch. Williams had been housed in another section of Barwon, so McCulloch had hardly spoken with him for four years, but he still thought he could trust Williams. I believe the pressure he was under had created some form of psychological illness where he was not well and deviated from the morals that he would normally have held to. So what happened? It's alleged that he stated to the Australian Crime Commission that I had provided a document. The document, I believe, was named IR44, Information Report 44. That's a document that I had a copy of from a legitimate brief of evidence and was not a document that I provided to Carl at the time. However, the allegation in a statement when I was charged by the Australian Crime Commission with 30 counts, each carrying a five-year maximum sentence. Information Report 44 and the ghosts of Terry and Christine Hodson had come back to haunt McCulloch. Paul Dale, the policeman, was charged with the Hodson's murder. Dale had been one of the two officers involved in the burglary of a drug house in Oakley on Grand Final Day 2003. Williams said Dale had paid $150,000 for the hit, which was carried out by veteran hitman Rodney Earl Collins. And IR44 seemed an important part of the conspiracy. If found guilty, McCulloch faced five years in jail on each count. He was looking at a double-figure addition to his existing sentence. He would more than likely die in jail. William's betrayal was stunning. You'd got to know Carl very well and the family. How disappointing was it when this came to light? That's obviously very disappointing, but one has to view it in the context of the pressure that was on that person at that time. Well, I guess he was choosing between a friend and his family, one could argue. Absolutely, and there's there's no choice there. He had just lost his mother. Nothing more sad than that. Williams had been full of bravado on the outside, but facing 35 years in the pressure cooker of Barwon, he simply folded. Like so many tough guys, he did the crime, but found he couldn't do the time. In November 2008, his beloved mother Barbara gave up and took her own life, and whatever fight Williams had left in him disappeared. He was prepared to give up everyone for a host of inducements, including sentence reductions, the payment of his daughter's private school fees and his father's tax bill. And I was to be part of the prosecutions. The cops tried to link me to McCulloch through my phone calls with Williams in May 2004. If it could be proven that McCulloch had the copy of IR44 that had gone missing on the night of the burglary in 2003, he was facing more than 10 years in jail. And my testimony could be crucial. I was called into a coercive hearing at the Australian Crime Commission. I couldn't tell my family and I couldn't refuse any questions. The key question was whether I'd actually seen the document and could confirm it was IR44. Get hauled up to the commission and I'm being asked questions about this document that I I only vaguely ever remembered being aware of whether I saw it or not. or And its contents, of course, were revealing the fact that Terry and Hodson was an informer in rela- and there was talk about 
Lewis Moran and other cases, whatnot, that he'd informed on. And I didn't see the significance of it, really, because I thought, well, didn't everyone know that? If it, if it was if it was getting to a police information report, surely everyone knew it already. I don't believe the the document itself was of great significance. But two people had been murdered because of IR44, and the cops could see an opportunity to wrap McCulloch into the conspiracy. However, there was a simple explanation. McCulloch did have a copy of IR44, but he didn't actually supply that copy to Williams, and it wasn't stolen from the police. It was actually from a brief of evidence in the trial of Detective Wayne Strawn. Williams may have had the stolen copy, but McCulloch's copy was legit. The prosecution was discontinued and McCulloch was free, but only to return to Barwon. Williams was in another unit, so there was no chance they would ever cross paths. In any case, in April the following year, Williams would be dead. His head caved in by a fellow prisoner, Matthew Johnson, wielding the stem from an exercise bike. After Carl Williams was killed, the murder charges against former cop Paul Dale over the Hodson's death were withdrawn. And McCulloch could get back to his jailhouse mission. The general manager of Barwon, David Prideau, had been moved to head office before this, but now he returned to Barwon. One Friday night in June 2011, jailhouse lawyer and the governor stood talking in one of the units. Prideau was headed off on a hunting trip. I said, you're looking forward to going away. He said, yeah, I'm not as fit. I haven't been able to do too much. This job's driving me mad just now because he'd been acting director of prisons and been brought back for to sort out all the problems over the, I think it was the death of Carl Williams at the time. Prideau had a problem and needed McCulloch's help before he went off on his break. He had asked me to talk to a person in management who had been threatening to sew up his lips, as he'd done on a previous occasion years ago, in protest. They had searched his room and could not find needle and thread. But they knew that this particular person had the commitment to do what he said he was going to do in protest and had done so before. And because I had been helping him with his university courses, David came down himself and said, is there anything I can say to him that will get him to hand this over because you and I know if he said he's going to do it, he's going to do it. I said, yeah, yeah, there is something you can say to him. Again, when I started helping this particular inmate, I said, you promise me you'll never do anything that will endanger me being able to come to help you and others down in this management unit. I give you my word, David. I shake and I look you in the eyes. So I said to David Pedro, I said, say to him that he said to me, I give you my word, David, Shake and I'll look you in the eyes that he would never do that and endanger anything. Within half an hour, I get called up to the console in my unit and Mr Prideau said, your friend has handed over the needle and thread. Prideau went off hunting with his brother-in-law in Victoria's rugged Alpine National Park, content there was one less problem in the jail. McCulloch wished him a good trip. He said, yeah, I'm real tired. And I said, well, you've got to get back to training. Do you have to take all those promotions? He said, it's not the promotions, it's what you have to do when you're in that position, when those issues come. So I said, well, you've got to look after yourself. He said, yeah, I'll go, I'll look after myself, mate. And, and, then, and then that was the end of the story. It was the last time he ever saw him. Prideau vanished in that rugged country a few days later, and not a trace of him has ever been found. There was gossip that this mysterious disappearance was connected to the murder of Carl Williams. How shocking was it when David Prideau was suddenly 
missing, disappeared, never to be found again. Absolutely shocking. And the rumour mill was running wild, as one can imagine. And uh, it was clear with the connections of the influential inmates in the Victorian prison system that it was not a inmate criminal involved matter whatsoever. Did life change for you after David Prideau's disappearance? Yeah, the regime changed. There was there was one one uh, pommy guy came in, ended up leaving after about a year as general manager. Tried to uh, encourage the staff to undertake the work that an inmate was doing. How are we going to look if this gets it? There's an inmate does all this work. He didn't succeed. There was too many decent governors under him, but collectively were very strong. So that didn't succeed. He wasn't a bad guy. He just was thinking, an inmate doing all this, let us come in from different jails. There must be villainy going on. I don't know that he thought there was a villainy going on. I think he was just thinking, this will make us look bad as an organisation. Barwon was still a very dangerous place with its long culture of stabbings inside the prison and safety was high on McCulloch's agenda. The horse whisperer was sceptical that anything would change. Barwon's always been a place that uh, there's no fistfights. It's always stabbings or, yeah. It's the top end of the scale where it happens. It's, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, trying to eliminate them. At Barwon, you'll never get the stabbings out. It is the culture of the place. Or so inmates thought until McCulloch got together with some of the senior prisoners. I guess in some ways the, the gangland war had shifted venues into Barwon. There was a lot of the players in there and it doesn't take much to get a, a bit of violence going in Barwon. So what was what was the atmosphere like and how did you feel about it? Fairly, fairly tense atmosphere. I felt okay about it. I had many friends that were, were regarded as the hierarchy. From what I was told when I got there, Oh, there's a bloody stabbing every week here. And what were being used? What implements? Handmade. We called them shivs, which is form of knife or or sharpened implement. And how would they make them? More than likely, in some instances, from the factory area or whatever garden implements that they could acquire. Sharpened toothbrushes? That type of thing, yeah. So the thing was that there was... Obviously, weapons more freely available during that particular six months to a year than what there has ever been since. And I put that down to the decent, more influential inmates coming together and virtually laying down the law that there'll be no more weapons made. Sounds simple, wasn't quite that simple. And a lot of guys don't want to be seen as having done something that would help the system. Really? Absolutely. Even if it saved lives? Yes. That's just the way it is. This subculture is a very unusual subculture. There are guys in there who, if the general public knew what they did to maintain the peace in the prison system, would find it hard to believe. So what typically would have have happened if you were still involved in swordplay, as it were? Um, What would have happened to you, one of those guys? You would have been given the opportunity to bail to ask to be taken out of mainstream, either into protection or asked to go to another jail or, or whatever. And if you didn't? Then it would have been more severe. Yeah, I mean, look, it got to a stage where um, the officers were, if it was a punch-up, they didn't worry about it because that's less, 
less serious than a stabbing. So, yeah. At one stage, you could go up to the long room where there's boxing bags and there's a court there, and you could you know, go and do some training there. So you could go up there and, and sort it out between you. Punch on. Yeah, yeah. And there was no cameras there. Yeah, and, and it was done all clean and square and... Well, yeah, yeah. It's still a problem, but one the public never gets to hear about. It was something that worked fairly instantaneously because th- those that have got influence in the prison system, they're not all heavy, stereotype, gangster-type people at all. Some of them are the most gentle, generous and understanding. What, you on a prison farm or something? But that's... On Hogan's Heroes? But that's the way it was. <laughs> These were good people who had a quiet influence. November 2017, David McCulloch was finally released from Barwon after 13 years and four months. He would leave a legacy behind, not just an empty cell. Together, McCulloch and David Prideau had tried to change the culture, particularly in young offenders. And arguably, he left Barwon a better place than when he found it. What was it like that first day when you picked him up out at Barwon? and brought him here. What was it like for him? Well, so we stopped at one of the food courts and to get something to eat, and so he, he wanted the Singapore noodles and some stuff, so, so I can't use chopsticks too good, so no, him straight in the chopsticks, yeah. So he's sitting there and he, he never spoke a word. All he did was scoff it down after years of uh, what they ate in there, so. Just weeks after his release, McCulloch got another shock, the Legal Services Board of Victoria accused the jailhouse lawyer of acting as a solicitor without a licence. It carries a two-year jail term. So you came out of jail and decided that you were going to be a pretend lawyer. That was their allegation. I think that was the initial allegation, but they resiled somewhat from that to the point where they're saying that I didn't hold myself out to be qualified to give legal advice. However, what I was doing was still in breach of what they call uniform law, the act. How that works, I don't know. And that carries a couple of years in jail and a a fine? I think it does, yes. Two years, I think. Well, I'm going to fight it because I believe that I wasn't in breach, but that's just my perception of it. How are you going to fight it? Well, I hope that I will be able to have solicitors assist me in it, and I understand I have solicitors prepared to assist me pro bono. Does it feel that it's just pure vindictiveness that's being levelled against you? Is vindictiveness the correct word? I don't know. There's some degree of why would Victoria Police be concerned I was giving advice to inmates in the system. If McCulloch is to be punished for bringing hope to those behind bars and contributing to the smooth and harmonious running of the jail, then he says, bring it on. It's set down for trial in March 2019. Once that's dealt with, he'll finally get around to the question of his own petition for mercy to address the injustice of being set up for drug trafficking all the way back in 2001. There are no fears I hold for anything else they can do to me. If they send you away for 13 plus years, and that's the best they can do, and you come out fairly sane, fairly normal, and with no great bitterness, the future of what they could possibly do to me Nothing bothers me in that regard. My aim is primarily, I have one major conviction, 1985. I don't want my grandchildren to, when they get older, and do their investigations as grandchildren do and great-grandchildren do, 
believe that their grandfather or great-grandfather was a career criminal. I would rather it be he did the wrong thing once. Purely a selfish thing for me, for them, to be able to, oh, yeah, Pop did the wrong thing once, but that's it. How do you want them to remember you? What qualities would you like them to remember in you? Just, just as a pop, just, yeah. It's March 19, 2019, and David McCulloch is back at court. The Victorian Legal Services Board was prosecuting our jailhouse lawyer for pretending to be a lawyer when he was released from prison in November 2017. This carries a two-year jail term. But days before the hearing to set a trial date, the board had a change of heart. So, there was an offer on the table that if I agreed to consent to the orders, that they would agree not to prosecute. And this is what it's all about today. The orders essentially mean that McCulloch agrees not to do something he has never done. And in fact, the board does not accuse him of. OK, we're going to the Supreme Court in a second to get this ratified. I don't really understand what happened, what changed, because a few short weeks ago, they were dead keen to prosecute you for this, which uh, an offence that carries a large fine and two years imprisonment. Absolutely. So how did, it, how did it come to that they would suddenly go, well, you can just go? I think an indication of what may have occurred came by virtue of a telephone conversation I had with the, the manager of the Victoria Legal Services Board Regulatory Department. And he talked about, look, you don't want any more publicity. Any more publicity sort of hit a spot. What publicity were they talking about? Obviously, I would assume from that that they had listened to the podcast, your very own podcast, in relation to to my matter from Podcast One. And so I have a feeling that that gave them cause for concern simply in a time there's an ex-inmate who has served approximately 14 years imprisonment helping other inmates find justice because they... Doesn't seem right, does it? It doesn't seem right, but it's obviously something that they are keen to rectify. Yeah, well, J-Law takes on the VLSB and wins, I reckon. That's the headline. I think that's maybe been very kind, but thanks <laughs> for that anyway. Good one. Let's go and see what's going to happen. Court 14. Leaving the Supreme Court, David? Yes. For once, they didn't ask you to stay. <laughs> well, that's a change, actually. I'm quite impressed with the fact that... Uh, McCulloch had represented himself. He was nervous, but he didn't look out of place in the court. It was over in 15 minutes. McCulloch thinks this complaint came from Victoria Police. A stitch-up, really. A dubious use of court time. I understand that the originating motion for everything to come into play by Victoria Legal Services Board. That occurred through Victoria Police. My belief is, had Victoria Legal Services Board been comprehensively thorough in their due diligence, they would perhaps have reconsidered contemplating charging me in the first place. Because as we know, in their recent submissions prior to the agreement by consent, they had 
resolved from the fact that I had held myself out to be qualified. They then stated categorically, that's not what I did. So someone has done due diligence a little bit later than possibly was warranted, resulting in who knows what sort of costs. As you saw the legal team there today, there was a team of three and, well, four, because the head of the Legal Services Board, I would imagine, is a solicitor or barrister by profession. One would assume, perhaps not. <laughs> I actually feel as though the Supreme Court has vindicated me. It makes me feel what I did was correct, was worthy, and although I have to be very, very careful and I will not breach the order, we'll be able to continue in some capacity to assist in other ways those inmates who are disadvantaged by virtue of being unable, some, to read or write, certainly unable to interpret certain matters not in relation to legal matters per se, but generally in writing letters and doing education and rehabilitation, as we know, doesn't exist in the prison system. But some inmates can self-rehabilitate. As the court broke up, the opposing barrister couldn't help himself. Try and stay out of trouble, will you? He said condescendingly. That's not McCulloch's plan. He's made a submission to the Royal Commission into Victoria Police and its informer management system, the one he'd been calling for since 2002. And after 14 years in jail, he knows about every informer in the system and he has plenty to say. So I'm looking forward to this year in particular, the vindication of the charges that were falsely laid against me is important. My past is my past and the crimes I committed in the past, I admitted to and served time for. On this occasion, it was a perversion of the course of justice in a substantial way involving police corruption and corruption at the highest level, in some cases, officers of the Office of the Public Prosecution in Victoria. And I just, that's my way of saying, you must uphold the law, otherwise it results in anarchy. The producer was Sarah Grinberg. Mixing, editing and theme music by Matt Nikolic. Executive producer, Grant Tothill. This has been a Real Crime production. Written and produced by Adam Shand. Listener.